I look out in the audience, even during that last very rousing uh, song, and I see people from all over the world. Uh, we're sharing from a recent trip to Asia, and if you look up here, if you can turn those lights down, that would be very helpful. Otherwise, you can't see the countries, can you? I didn't think so. So this is just the intro. Vicky, I'm Douglas. Vicky and I will share a little bit about our recent trip to Asia, and hopefully that'll segue right into the sermon from the book of Acts. Are we going to get those lights off? Is that possible? If it's not possible, then it's okay. I'll just, we'll skip it. Just, you, it's okay to say no. I, we, we can wing it. Oh, there it goes. All right. Can you see China? Okay, that's Russia. This, this is Asia. This is Asia. So we, we live over here. We went just a couple weeks ago, that's much better, to the Philippines. And that's where our Asian trip began. Everyone's heard of Manila, the capital. They meet once a year, the whole church had a chance to preach on Soldiers of Christ, Ephesians 6, to almost 4,000 people. This was the conclusion of a campus weekend. They had a national campus conference called the Uprising. I don't know if that's a, that's a little bit too political for me, the Uprising, but I, they meant well. And we spiritualized it, uh, Soldiers of Christ, in Manila. Uh, incredible campus uh, ministry. We spoke at an awards dinner, did lots of classes, also had a chance to teach church history in our program there. I, at the end, I went to the very top. You can't read it even for, from row one, but that's a place called Lawag. And this is a church, a smaller one, that started 20 years ago, and they finally had an outside speaker. So many places I go, they've never had an outside speaker. I was the first one. Why go to a small church when I'm going to such a big one, always to communicate the message, you're there, we know you're there, you're important, uh, we bring you greetings from North River, and so forth. Vicki. I'm sorry, it's not. Uh, just, just talk to me. Oh, there you go. You got it. You got it. Why would I want to talk to Doug? Anyway, um, the last time I was in Manila was actually in 1994. And um, for me, it was a very special trip to be able to go back and to remember because in 1994, we were at a conference and that's where we decided um, that we would adopt a little girl from China. And that came true in 1995. And many of you know our youngest daughter, Lily. Uh, she is now 21 years old. She's at college in California. And I think for both of us, we look back and saying that was one of the best decisions of our life that we ever made. And it was based on the scripture in James 1, 24, 27. That was, that's today featured in the bulletin um, about how important our religion is true when we take care of widows and orphans. And so just even coming back today and seeing that we're featuring uh, the, the Edge Single Women's Ministry is so encouraging to me because when I was out in Manila, that was one of the women's groups that I got to share with and talk to. And I was able to share about a lot of the things that this group that I'm a part of here at North River that we do with the single moms here. And I know they had a retreat last week and I was so sad that I wasn't able to be there. But to share what these women do 
um, their commitment to having family group, to coming to all the church services, but also every other week we go and help at a shelter for homeless women. And it's so encouraging that what we do here at North River, we're able to share, to, to inspire people to be called higher and to really try to live out the scriptures in their life. Mm -hmm. So I did that class for the single women. I uh, also got to share with some of the campus women too. And you know, it's quite an age gap between sometimes sharing for women my age in their 50s and then I'm sharing with them. And the one thing I try to encourage them to do is to live out Luke chapter one, is to have Mary and Elizabeth relationships. And the talk that how our fellowship, we need to be interdependent on each other through our age groups and not just stick with people our own age, um, you know, who are similar to us. Mm -hmm. And so that was very exciting for me to be a part of that and to get to share those things. Great. So that was Manila and then the small church in Lawag, which the, the week after I left, they grew by five. Baptisms, restorations. Okay, it's fun. Next stop, next stop we went, uh, we flew to... Cambodia, which is right there next to Vietnam. I don't know how many of you have been there, but uh, the greatest pride we have there, I think, is the hospital that we began in the 1990s, which is the premier medical facility in the entire country. So we were here in, uh, that's just the word Cambodia. We weren't there, we were here in, the, in Phnom Penh, right there, and which is the capital. And then also uh, up north in Siam Reap, where the famous Angkor Wat is. Angkor Wat, the ruins of the Hindu and uh, Buddhist temples. Vicki? We took a day out. Um, we spent some time with the disciples in Siem Reap, but we went to visit Angkor Wat. Um, that's the biggest temple there, but it's a whole temple complex in Angkor that is at least 700 temples. They're still standing. They're, a little, they're ancient ruins, but some of these ruins are a thousand years old. And just to see, I think for me, I don't believe in the Hindu and the Buddhist gods that had inspired these temples, but I think of the people who were so dedicated, they believed so much. And I asked myself about my walk with God, what am I willing to do? Would something last a thousand years because of the passion and the intensity and the belief that I had? You know, I see the sincerity although they may be sincerely wrong and not understanding who the true God was. But it's incredible to see just the heart behind the human um, mind being able to really focus and really want to leave something and to worship. And to me, that was just something that made me think about the level of my worship. What am I willing to do to put in? I don't believe in what they believe in, but I'm inspired by their sincerity. Speaking of sincerity, Speaking of sincerity, am I turned off? Am I off? I'm a little off today? Okay, there it is. It's all right. So one thing that encouraged me, it just it illustrates how we're a network, uh, a global family, our, our church. There's a sister from the Philippines over there who actually was in uh, Thailand, who flew from Thailand to Phnom Penh just to hear Vicky speak and me. And I'm wondering, are you someone who would spend $150 to fly to another country just to hear a few lessons because you want to be fed biblically? I mean, what would you spend $150 on? This is unusual. I've, I've never met anyone like that before. 
but it was very powerful, an incredible statement. We were asked to speak on going deeper into the Bible. We taught separate, again, men's and women's classes and had a wonderful time there. And the reason at the beginning, I realized I was a bit vague when I, I talked about how proud we are of the medical facility, the CNO Hospital Center of Hope, is that during the genocide, the genocide in the 1970s, all the doctors and nurses were killed. They were all executed, I think, except for about four or five in the whole country. And so they're really beginning from scratch. And if you ever have a chance to go there, uh, you will and you'll love it. I preached on the one hope on that Sunday, really got people excited about the resurrection of the next, next world. We changed planes in Vietnam, and then we ended up in Singapore. Vicky? Singapore is almost a second home for us. We've spent, we've, I've probably been there 10 or 11 times in my life, uh, and it's a wonderful place. And um, they had asked us, they were starting out a new, Bible school, Bible ministry program, and for us it was a bit like a homecoming, but it also felt like we were really living out the scriptures. In Ezra and Nehemiah, the people are in need of a Bible teacher, but they were also in need of a visionary and an architect to help them get back to God. And John and Karen Louie have been friends of ours for more than 30 years. And we've done a lot of missions work together. And to go and be with them, and I'll put John and Karen in the visionary category, and I'll put Doug in the Bible scholar category. But together we worked together to set up this new program. And uh, in five days we taught 24 classes. Um, now Doug is used to doing that, but they wanted me to teach as well. And um, it really called me higher, but it was also a privilege to have so many young people take off a week because they wanted to go deeper in their Bible knowledge. And we taught about uh, church history, the false doctrines that have arisen during those periods and how that false, those false doctrines influence us today in society. Um, so it was a really tremendous time to go back and, and to be with the church there in Singapore and kind of have a tag team approach. And actually for me, it's a privilege to get to teach with Doug because I think it shows me just how much he knows we were able to change the program um, put in a whole science because we realize that in many countries today, science is almost a false doctrine where people think, I can't believe in science and be a Christian, and the two don't complement each other. And he put together a fantastic lesson that really built everyone's faith and sent these kids out refreshed and encouraged to face the world. Vicky mentioned that. Vicky mentioned that some people took a week off of work. Well, the students had just got off. Their college had just uh, released them, and the, we had about 200 students all together. But there were a number of older people, working people, who took a week off of work. I don't know how many weeks you get off in a year. My boss doesn't give me hardly anything. Uh, but <laughs> these people, again, taking off from work. They, they could have gone, they could have caught a, a flight to Indonesia and gone to some luxurious island resort, or they could come and learn about church history and doctrine and build their faith. It really shows uh, priorities. You want to say anything else about that? I was just going to say in conclusion. In conclusion, go ahead, Vicki. Here's Singapore right there. Go I just ahead. wanted to say that, you know, we were, we were gone for three weeks, but it's so encouraging to be able to come back here to North River as our home base. And um, last week especially, uh, I just want to even really thank the worship team because I, it was, we had a fantastic worship service and AP was up there singing, my God is awesome, you know, he can move mountains. And when we're out there in these countries, sometimes where it feels like it's 100 degrees and no air conditioning, it's not safe to go out and walk and pray. 
These are the songs that so often I sing, and I feel like people are expecting us to answer their questions from the Bible, and it feels like these are huge mountains to move. And just being able to come back and have you as our family and our home base is so refreshing. And just for the songs that we sing, um, I take those with me around the world, and I am singing those songs on the other side of the world, and I just thank you so much for the support that you give us. And the only thing I would say in conclusion, a thing that encouraged me, and I know Vicky, uh, far beyond what you might imagine, is that not only in Singapore and in Cambodia, but also in the Philippines, all the leaders are nationals. These are Filipinos. They're not being led by Americans. Uh, these are Cambodians leading Cambodia. These are Singaporeans leading Singapore. You say, well, what's the big deal? If not that long ago in our movement, we, we had the gumption to call ourselves international. Church of Christ, but most all the main leaders were from the United States. So it was really the wrong name. And there's no hope of evangelizing the world if everyone has to depend on one country for manpower or for money, right? Okay, good stuff. So Asia, uh, I'll be going back to Asia in a couple weeks. I'll be right over there. And I'll share with that uh, with you a little bit later on. But right now, it's time to begin the sermon. And if you need a title, you can use the title I came up with, which is Every Saul Needs a Barnabas. You might think that this weekend, I might have done the sermon on something different, like civil unions, gay marriage, the Supreme Court decision. And, and yet I'm not doing that. I did create an article, it's at my website, I hope it can help you think about these issues on civil unions. If you have a moment, click, click over there at douglasjacoby.com. Or you might think I'd talk about the 4th of July. I'm not. I mean, I'll, I'll refer to it in about 10 or 20 minutes. But, but no, but if you want to know what I think or what the Bible says, this is my website. There are podcasts and articles in, under the heading of politics, and you'll find it there. But right now, the North River preachers are in a series, and the series is from the book of Acts, and so I need to fit in and not just do what I might normally do myself. So what's been going on in the previous weeks? What's been going on in the book of Acts? Because we're gonna be looking at Acts chapter nine. Well, the church begins, they have kind of a happy time, peaceful time, uh, no persecution, uh, which, you know, the church begins in chapter two, the persecution doesn't even begin until chapter three. So it was uh, good there for about eight, eight or nine days. And then, I don't know how long it is, it might have been some months. And, and then we have Peter and John in prison. We have this picture of an amazingly hospitable church, praying for boldness, a church, a church that welcomed people into their homes and who liquidated their own possessions so that no one would be in need. This is something I don't think we understand nearly well enough in our church. Uh, the, the, the care for the poor, but principally the poor among believers, among the Christians. Then we have Stephen. Uh, last Sunday, if you were here, Jeff preached on this. If not, you can listen to it online. But Jeff preached about Stephen and also about Philip. Stephen, this uh, Greek-speaking Jewish brother full of faith in the Spirit, and he is misrepresented, he's slandered, and he has a chance to give a, preach, a, a preaching from, from the, the Bible, from the Old Testament, of course. At the end of that, he's executed. And his execution, really everything, his message, his trial, his execution, is, it perfectly parallels Jesus' own arrest and uh, 
the process of the trial and the execution. There's a lot there. And then Jeff took us into Acts 8. And I appreciated especially his point about continuing to preach the good news even when you've been hit by bad news. Well, who is the person who organized the, crucif the, execution, the execution of Stephen? When it says that the witnesses, those who are throwing the stones, brought their clothes their outer garments, because they didn't want to get blood over everything, they took out their outer garments and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Young, Saul's about 30 years old. That would certainly be considered young in biblical times. Saul is not just the coat boy, you know, okay, you know, leave me your coat and I'll, you know, you can give me a tip when you collect it out. No. Saul is the one who organized the execution of Stephen. Saul was a bad guy. If you think of the Spanish Inquisition, think of uh, Torquemada. Think of a, a Bible policeman, someone who is so convinced that people must follow the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, that those who don't must be arrested. They are a threat to the community. Paul shares later in this book of Acts, as well as in his letters, he shares how he arrested men and women. He dragged them from their homes. Maybe it was a knock on the door in the middle of the night, but he dragged them from their homes. His goal was to force them to blaspheme. I don't think you can get a Christian to blaspheme without some force, and most Christians would refuse to get, go back on, his, or on their faith in Jesus Christ. But he forced them. The implication is he used torture. And when they were executed, he cast his vote for them. So this is a guy who's been a bully. Uh, he's been bashing people. He thinks he's representing the Bible, but in truth, he's just forcing the faith on others, and he was wrong through the whole thing. He is confronted. He's on his way to Damascus, Syria. He's on his way to Damascus to ferret out more Christians. He has letters of authority, he will show, from the chief priests in Jerusalem. He's going to go through this significant city of Damascus and ask questions and find the believers so that they can be imprisoned and chained and brought to Jerusalem uh, for the interrogation and for what would follow if they refused to back down. Why am I presenting this harsh, rather stern picture of the Apostle Paul? Because he's not the Apostle Paul yet. He's still Saul of Tarsus. And if we don't get some sense of what an unpleasant fellow he would be if you were a Christian, it is impossible to understand our text for today. Let's look in, well, look at that. The whole scripture was there when I put it up. Okay. But I'm going to read the whole thing. This is my text. It's Acts 26. Um, Acts 9, 26. Acts 9. So this is about Saul. Saul, on the way to Damascus, sees a, a blinding light, and the, the light knocks him to the ground and everyone else. He can't see, but he can hear. He hears the voice of the Lord, who says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in a flash, he realizes that the Jesus, the Christians worship as the Lord, is in fact to be equated with the God of Israel. In other words, what he thought was a horrible blasphemy, heresy, and false doctrine about Jesus the Messiah, 
was actually not false at all. They were right, and Saul was on the wrong course completely. The Bible says that he had three days blind to fast and pray. Now, three days, I think, means a day and a half. It's like the crucifixion, because they always counted the first day and the last day in the series. So, you know, if he, if he saw the light on Tuesday, three days would be Thursday. Okay, so Ananias is sent to him. And every Saul needs an Ananias, but that's not my sermon title. And Ananias is trembling in his boots, but he shares with him. He heals him of his blindness first. So here's Saul who's had this miraculous experience. He's, he's gone through a healing as well. Now he can see he's called Jesus Lord, clearly believes, but he's not yet saved. No, because he's not been baptized yet. And there's a huge emphasis on baptism in the New Testament. And as he tells his own story, well, you can read it yourself. He's baptized, and immediately in Damascus, he begins to preach. He begins to preach. This is the guy who was going around to, to ferret out Christians, and now he's preaching. Not only that, the persecuted, the persecutor Saul becomes the persecuted. Now he's in trouble, and they're guarding the gates. The people are guarding the gates, so if he tries to, to exit, they'll nab him. So what he has to do is wait until nighttime and then surreptitiously go over the wall. Run away. As Jesus said, when they persecute you in one city, flee to another. Live to preach another day. And that's exactly what he did. Surely there was some word about what happened. Back in Jerusalem, people had heard of his conversion, but they weren't convinced. Okay, that's the entire background. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. What a surprise. They did not believe he was a disciple. Why would you believe he was a disciple? The passage says that they, he tried to join the church. Maybe he was visiting one of the small groups, or maybe it was something more informal. They didn't have church buildings back then, so it had to be something on the small side. But the disciples are afraid of him. The Bible says, don't fear man, only fear God. But the disciples are afraid. Ananias was already afraid. What kind of people are we afraid of? Um, we're afraid of people we think would like to hurt us. We're afraid sometimes of very large people, very powerful people, authority figures, especially if our conscience isn't clear. We're afraid of people we owe money to. Uh, we're a lot of money. We're, we're afraid of people that we cannot believe could have become Christians. It was many years ago, I will not name him, but a notorious serial, uh, serial killer in this country was in prison, and shortly before his murder, he studied with some brothers from the church, and he was baptized. This caused ripples not only in the Church of Christ, but all over the broader Christian world. People speculating, could God really forgive a serial killer, one who killed and even ate his victims? Now, some people would say, well, God's grace is big enough, anyone could be forgiven. And yet, I think there's another sentiment, which I sense even right now uh, in the audience, which is, I don't think so. 
He's gone. He's past the point of no return. And yet, was it not a similar thinking that would have prevented them from welcoming as a brother this Saul of Tarsus? More to the point, because I want to see how this applies to us, this very important passage. Sometimes we have difficulty accepting, as followers of Christ, people we might view as false teachers. Now, I don't think we should just throw open the, the doors and let anyone come up and have the, the pulpit. In fact, the Bible says, if someone is not preaching Jesus, be careful. You don't just let them into your home, your house church. In fact, if you welcome him in a certain way, you're, you're sharing in his wicked work. That is in the little letter of 3 John. We may be afraid of those in other Christian groups about which we lack information. Sometimes we're afraid because we're not sure that people have really become Christians. Maybe they were a little bit confused about the Holy Spirit when they were baptized, which was my case, actually. My case. We may have difficulty believing that these people are really saved because of serious life issues. I, I remember as a younger man when I first met some people with some really serious life issues like families where the parents would be shouting at each other or even using profanity, shouting angrily at their children. And in my thought at that time, how can you even be a Christian? Clearly, you never even became a Christian if you're behaving that way. Because at that point, I didn't realize that sometimes Christians do those kinds of things. It may be hard for you to believe that someone who's committed adultery could be on the rebound. That if the family is out of control, there could still be hope. There are all kinds of things that could prevent us from embracing others. And yes, God's grace is enormously broad. And yes, the way of holiness is phenomenally narrow. And we have to figure out how to conduct ourselves towards others in love. But when I look at this passage, I think, oh, we're the gatekeepers. We're the gatekeepers. And we weren't expecting anyone to be saved without going through us. Like, unless they do it my way, they can't be real Christians. If they teach one thing wrong, then they're false teachers. False teachers aren't saved, therefore they're in trouble. Now, I am not, I am not saying you just believe anything you want to believe. Some things are matters of faith, and without them, you can't be a Christian. But there are other things that are not quite so clear, where maybe there is some latitude for different opinions. And so a passage like this challenges me. I'll share more later on uh, exactly how deeply, but I think this has application to all of us. So it's not going so well. Barnabas took him, Barnabas, took him and brought Saul to the apostles. And he shared. He declared how on the road he had seen the Lord, spoke to him, and how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. What happened on that Damascus road? Again, he was persecuting. God got his attention in a big way. He's not saved yet. As Paul emphasizes, he hadn't repented, Acts 26. He hadn't been baptized, Acts 22. 
but he will become a Christian on that third day. He's healed, he's baptized, he boldly proclaims, and he starts preaching immediately. Barnabas knew that Saul was a true Christian, but the others weren't so sure. And without Barnabas embracing Saul and championing, and championing his cause, perhaps they, they would not have accepted him, even the apostles. There are many passages in Acts on hospitality and welcoming people, but in these chapters, uh, chapters 9, and it's the same with 10 and 11, and even 12, we see our brothers and sisters, not, it's not their finest hour. They're, they're about to reject Saul's membership application. Uh, even the apostle Peter is, seems to be nonplussed about this Gentile Cornelius in chapter 10. What am I supposed to do with him? You know, doesn't he have to become a Jew before we will even study with him? He's a Gentile. We see the, the Jerusalem leaders are prejudiced in chapter 11 and in chapter 12, when Peter's released from prison and he goes straight to the house church, they almost don't even let him in. Now, they work through things and that's very encouraging. But let's think for just a second about the role of Barnabas here. Barnabas knew that there was evidence in Saul's earlier life that God had chosen him, that he had tremendous faith, and that he was committed. Barnabas has the guts to take this man to the apostles because he knows even high-powered leaders can be wrong. Doesn't matter how old a Christian you are, you can be wrong. I can be wrong. In fact, even in the ministry of Jesus, this problem popped up all the time. The book of Acts, from which we're reading, is volume two of Luke. You probably know that. In the Gospel of Luke, there's extreme prejudice in Luke 4, where Jesus preaches his very first sermon. In Jesus' ministry, he constantly exposes the bias of God's people in favor of Jews and against Samaritans and Gentiles. Jesus works hard to help those at the margins, the outsiders, the foreigners, women, the lower class, the slaves, those who are at their wit's end, who've run out of hope. They do have hope in Jesus Christ, and we should never let favoritism, this is the biblical word, make us refuse to welcome those whom God has chosen. Barnabas takes Saul to the apostles because he knew that leaders make mistakes, Christians make mistakes, and Barnabas was not intimidated into silence. I mentioned that in Luke, there had been some problems before. This is Luke 9. Okay, we were just in Acts 9. Acts 9 is really Luke 33, right? Because it's, it's two-volume work. Now, this is the apostles, Luke 9. John Master, Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So this tendency to reject the outsider, to think that, well, he has to, he has to go through us. You know, we're the gatekeepers. We're, we're the judges. We're, we'll, we'll make the decision. That was in Luke. 
And the, the, the Christians needed time to work through those issues. Even the apostles did. And we see that as we continue in the book of Acts. Now, this is a bit of a different situation. This guy wasn't trying to join uh, the, the, the apostles of Jesus, uh, unlike Saul, who was. But I think it applies all the same. What are the similarities? The presence of someone from an outside group causes anxiety among the insiders. How should we view him? Shall we accept him? Then people pull back and people say things, people say things about this threatening outsider. They've objectified him. He's not the person, he's more like a problem. But we need Jesus Christ to help us to adjust our attitude, especially when we're young. Now, the old will not go unscathed. And old, of course, I mean 30 plus. But let's talk about young. I thought of my own situation. My wife, Vicki, explained how we changed one of our classes in Singapore. The class was supposed to be on, on Christian movements in the 19th century, in, in the 20th century. So we still did it, but I changed it slightly to faith and religion, Christianity and science. Because for a lot of people, sadly, uh, and th this I think comes mainly from the United States, uh, there are people who believe you have to reject science to become a Christian. They'll say that uh, biologists, physicists, chemists, geologists, uh, astrophysicists, they're all wrong, only the Bible is right. Well, of course the Bible's right, and of course science is right. But people are trying to say that, no, you have to reject science to get baptized. Now, how, you said you're gonna share about yourself. I remember clearly in my first year as a Christian, talking to a scientist in the church who was 50 years old. And I was a very mature 18, almost 19, <laughs> 50. And I said, do you believe in modern science? He said, of course. And I said, well, how can you be a Christian? See, in my head, unless you agreed with, with my narrow interpretations on science, like, you know, how much science had I studied by age 18, really? Was it, had I rocketed past Galileo? Did I leave Einstein up in the attic with my other kindergarten toys? I mean, who was I? Where was humility? But I said, how can you be a Christian? Sadly, this was a brother who actually struggled with his faith. And he said, yeah, I've often asked myself that question, you know, am I saved? Which only fed me to think, well, there, that proves it. Modern science is evil. I don't believe that in the slightest now. I have changed. Year five, that was year one. Year five, it was the, my, the first um, day of my second year at seminary. And this preacher who was coming for training was so excited and warm and I, I felt drawn to him I thought we're gonna be great friends but after we've been together two hours I realized he disagreed with me on a, on a doctrine it's not a salvation issue but it's a doctrine and the next four or five hours we talked about it and he wouldn't repent so I had to wash my hands <laughs> shake the dust because clearly he's he's a non-christian how I long for those days of greater certainty, like in year five and year one. And then this from year 10, I realized it was year 10 that sometimes I would draw back 
from giving my heart to someone or even fellowshipping because I'm afraid it's going to lead to a commitment. Like, it's like if I share with that guy, I'm going to have to invite him to dinner. If I share my faith with that person over there, he might say yes. That's the problem. And then it's the time. Where do you find the time to help people? And that was not a problem with me as an early, as a young Christian. But I, around year 10, sadly, it started to change. And because I'm the busiest person in the world, you know, I really could only take on so many people. <laughs> then I remember in my year 20, I'm back in seminary, and now, now I'm, I'm doing the, the, uh, the professional doctorate. And I felt so anxious because there were people in our class who, let's just say, how do I put this? They were certainly very committed, but their doctrine was different from mine. Now, there's another brother in my class, a brother named Steve Kennard, who handled things very graciously. He's like, Doug, don't, don't sweat about this. I mean, you know, they're trying to find God. We'll, we'll do what we can do, and, you know, let's, let's learn from this. To me, it really bothered me, because I, I thought, this is even at year 20. Either the Holy Spirit has been working in these people's life, or he hasn't. If he hasn't, they're lost. If, if he has, then they're saved. There can't be anything in the middle. Now, I mean, even these days, I don't agree with that. You, God, the Spirit can work in your life even before you're a Christian. G God will draw you to him, John 6, 44. You'll be drawn to Jesus, John 12, 32, as he's lifted from the earth, he draws all people. So that, 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 that influence, that relationship begins even before we're Christians. It's like, are you, are you married? No, but I have a girlfriend. Oh, so you have no relationship with her because you're not married yet. No, we have a relationship, you know. Uh, we've been dating now for 364 days, and you know. I'm... See, you can have a relationship before you're married. Now, I'm not talking about cheating or immorality, but I'm just saying God works in people's lives even before, even before they get baptized. Uh, somewhere between year 20 and year 30, I made peace with that. Um, I was just very anxious at that time. Well, see, I've crossed over from talking about young people <laughs> to all people. I think there are many of us who need to watch our attitude. And when someone is seeming, and you'll find this same passage in Mark as well, with a twist, but when someone seems to be following the Christian program, our job is not to stop them. Because Jesus says, whatever he means, the one who's not against you is for you. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> and by the way, I hope it's not a surprise, there are certainly other groups, quite a few, who teach faith, repentance, and baptism, just as you do. Just as you do. But it may cause you anxiety. Oh, but they, they're not going through us. Well, maybe they weren't welcome. Maybe you should connect. Uh, we're not the only ones. Well, how should I feel about them? Because some of them, they have kind of an attitude. I mean, some people even talk bad about us. Well, maybe we'd have the attitude of Paul, Saul of Tarsus. Paul's attitude was in Philippians 1. Even if those other Christians are trying to mess me up, I mean, they're preaching out of envy, and it's a big competition, and they don't like me, and they're gossiping and slandering me. He says, as long as they're preaching Christ, 
I'm thrilled. As long as Christ is preached, that's all that matters. That was Paul's attitude, and eventually I realized that needs to be my attitude. Okay, very quickly, back to uh, Luke 33. So, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, because now the apostles have uh, uh, supported him. And he spoke and disputed, and it's an incredible life he has. Uh, we, we learn more about it in Paul's letters and in Acts. But basically, he's been bashing and bullying believers. He goes blind, he's baptized, and then after that, he's boldly proclaiming. Uh, he go, gets out of Damascus in a basket, but then things are bad because the believers think that he's not a brother, but thank God for Barnabas. Uh, Saul is embraced, and he does what he does best. He broadcasts the Bible. It certainly beats boredom and the blues, and I say bravo to that. So we have a, a very happy resolution here once they work through their unity issues. Everyone has room for, for that, that ministry, for that growth to take place, and things feel right again. We'll have to go through the same cycle of emotions in chapter 10, but I'll let you study that and talk about it in your family groups a little bit later on. There's, before I conclude, I need to include one side point. People can be suspicious of a, a Saul of Tarsus, like he's a spy, you know, he's infiltrating, he's just pretending. But people can also be suspicious of a Barnabas, not believing that he's the real thing. What do you mean? I think sometimes the gatekeepers judge the Barnabases even more harshly than they would uh, judge Saul. Barnabas is a bridge builder, reaching out to genuine Christians. To some extent, though by personality I'm more like a Paul, in my own work and ministry I try to reach out to others and other groups as a bridge builder. But sometimes that's not very welcome because it's confusing, it's much simpler if you're either with us or you're against us. Well, let's go to application before I let you go. Firstly and clearly, fear no one. We shouldn't be fearing people. We need to look at outsiders in a spirit of openness and love. Secondly, although the purity of doctrine requires us to exclude at times, not just everyone who says he's a Christian is a Christian, because we're called to live a holy life and not to judge outsiders, but we are supposed to judge the insiders, okay? There is a kind of exclusion that takes place, but we should be slow to exclude. We should be not only that, but welcoming to people of different cultures. I wish your church today had said more about the 4th of July. You know, we're an international family, so we can have a lot of hoopla for one nation. How about the other 193? How many owe oh, you have four children? Well, let's just celebrate one bir birthday for one of them. But, but no, we're all Americans here. No, we're not. There, there are 20 or 30 nationalities right here, as far as I, I know. And uh, we become blind. We, we think that, well, other cultures don't matter. They speak different language anyway. What's wrong with you? Don't you speak English, etc. We're a global family. Atlanta, six million people. One-tenth of Atlanta is Hispanic. 600,000 people who feel more comfortable speaking Spanish than English. What do we do about that? What do we do when we meet someone from another country 
How do you interact? What do you say when you meet a Muslim? It's always easier to exclude than to include. Fourthly, we need to speak biblically about the kingdom. This is just a word on kingdom talk. Maybe it's easier to see it now that it's, that it's unbiblical to say the church is the kingdom. But I still hear the confusion enough that I feel something needs to be said. Anyone who would limit the rule of God in heaven and earth over the dead and the living, the entire realm that is in obedience to God, anyone who would limit that to one congregation or one group is doubly wrong, triply wrong. Uh, because of the lack of humility, because of the false doctrine uh, saying that the church is the kingdom, and for the third reason as well, which I just decided not to talk about, partly because I couldn't remember it. But kingdom talk, <laughs> people act as though it's just one group. Oh, what, what about Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom. Yeah, if the kingdom is the church, seek first the church of Christ, and all these other things will be given to you as well. Is that what it says? No. Could it mean that possibly? No way. Think about it. The kingdom is the rule of God. It's not a group. It's a rule. Fifth, if someone is a Christian but's having difficulty being integrated into our church or our family group, let's be a Barnabas. Be a Barnabas to someone who needs integrating. And I know we have a lot of people in that position. Sixth, if you are serving as a Barnabas, be strong and courageous. And seven, if you're only meeting the Lord right now, remember the example of Paul and read the story of his own words and his conversion in Acts chapter 22. And why do we preach these things? Simply because every Barnabas needs a Saul, just as every Saul needs a Barnabas. God bless you. Think about this.